Ruth chapter 2. Ruth's own words are going to be the clue that unlocked the message of chapter 2. One word in particular is important. Three times she uses the word favor. It's in verses 2 and 10 and 13. Let's just read those to start. Verse 2, so Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. Ruth uh, chapter 2 verse 10, so she fell on her face, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And then in verse 13, she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord. Now, the word translated favor is the word normally translated grace. The King James uses the more familiar word grace in verses 2 and 10. God, the Holy Spirit, is calling our attention to the grace of God operating in Ruth's life. In chapter 1, Ruth had been saved by depending on God's grace. Now, in chapter 2, she was going to serve depending upon God's grace. It's interesting because God's law strictly excluded Moabites from the congregation of Israel. We briefly touched on this last time. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 23. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. In light of this restriction against Moabites, how can you explain Ruth the Moabite's determination to turn to God? Ruth said to her mother-in-law, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. You can only explain this by Ruth looking behind and beyond God's law to God's love and depending upon His grace to save her. And so it's, it's a fascinating study in grace. Ruth wouldn't take no for an answer. Uh, You know, God in his word said, I don't take Moabites. And she said, well, sure you will. Sure you will, because you're a God of love. You're a God of grace. And I'm going to follow my mother-in-law and you're going to accept me because I know something of your nature. And then Ruth is going to serve depending upon grace. Chapter two revolves around her expecting and then experiencing grace as she served in the field. Now, like Ruth, you and I are saved by depending upon grace. And like Ruth, you and I are also to go on serving depending upon grace. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, the Bible says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Your sufficiency to do the work of the Lord is by His grace, by His unmerited favor. It's not in and of yourself. It has nothing to do with your talent. In fact, oftentimes your talent gets in the way of your serving God. Uh, A lot of talented people never are able to really serve God from a position of grace and and power because their talent is all over them. And and so uh, the rest of us who are just normal people, uh, we're excited about this because God just wants to use us and fill us with his love and overflow as we depend upon him. And so having been saved by grace, we want to ask, how do we serve depending on it? And so we can look at Ruth. And what happens in in chapter two is every day she goes forth into the field, she expects and then she experiences grace in her three exclamations about grace. You have a teaching about going forth into your own field, whatever that is today, expecting and experiencing grace. And so, first of all, in verses one through three, 
We want to go forth each day seeking grace in the Lord's field. Uh, Chapter one ends and Naomi has returned to Bethlehem, bringing her daughter-in-law Ruth with her. Both of them had been widowed in Moab. Their only hope of making a living in Israel was for Ruth to glean behind the reapers during the barley harvest. And so verse one, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight am I found favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. A uh, couple of things there. First of all, she just happened to come to that. It's, it's God's providence at work. God bringing her to just that field that would uh, be uh, the right field. And uh, is, just a question, is anybody naming their boys Boaz? Are there any Boazes in our church? How come? There's Ruth's, right? I mean, Ruth is a popular name and there's Joshua and John and Jacob. And I mean, what's, what's wrong with Boaz? I just throw that out there to you. It's kind of a unique... I mean, Boaz is a fantastic Bible character. It's, it's, yeah, there are dogs. A lot of dogs are named Boaz. I've known several dogs named Boaz, but I don't know any man or boy named Boaz, and I think it's a travesty personally. So, Now, Ruth went forth into the field. We commonly use the word field, don't we, to indicate a person's employment or a specialized part of their employment. And so field to us is a word that can describe any and every area of your life. You can have a field of employment. Your marriage can be a field. Your family. Even our church fellowship is a particular field in the Lord's uh, uh, vineyard. Think of your whole life as a land that God has given you with many different and distinct fields that you go forth into each day or come back to each day. And we're going to see in chapters three and four why it is so important to notice that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. His relationship to Naomi, as we mentioned last week, made him a near kinsman who could act as a redeemer of Elimelech's property. And and there's this whole theme in the book of Ruth of the kinsman redeemer, of the one that's related to you having to be the one that redeems you when you're in difficulty. And it's a a picture of Jesus Christ who became a man, God in human flesh, to redeem us. But we had to be related to him, and that's why God had to become a man. And as we looked at it at great length last week, this is all set in a romantic context so that you can't miss the emphasis that God really does love you. It's not something he had to do. I mean, Christians don't usually admit this, but sometimes people have the feeling that that God has to accept you because of what Jesus did. But if it was just you, he'd he'd pass, you know, he doesn't really love you. You're just kind of lumped in to the rest of the elect and and, uh, context like this. That's why they're so important to realize that that God wants to tell you that he redeemed you out of this slavery to sin and death. But he did it in the context of a love story so that you won't miss that. Now, Ruth went forth and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The King James Version is kind of cute. It says it was her hap to come upon Boaz's field. And so, as I mentioned a moment ago, from her point of view, it was a coincidence. But from God's point of view, it was providence. Providence is God working in and through all that he has created to manage all things 
according to his own will. Providence means that there is no such thing as luck, chance, coincidence, or accident for the child of God. Now, we commonly use those terms, and, uh, and, and that's okay. I mean, we don't want to... Uh, kind of, maybe, I don't know if you've ever done this to me. I'm going to assume that you haven't, but uh, I get really annoyed when I wish somebody good luck and they tell me there's no such thing as luck. Well, I know that. I know that. There's no such thing as a sunrise either because the sun doesn't come up. The earth is actually turning. And stuff, but but I, I let that one go, you know. I mean, so let's let's just. So maybe we should get rid of luck. But I think we understand that there's no luck, there's no coincidence. If it, it's like saying, you know, well, I was driving in the fog and I got into an accident. No, you didn't. You got into a providence, brother. Well, yeah. Well, as far as my insurance is concerned, it was an accident, and uh, I understand that God is in control. But it's still, you know, I anyway. Now, so it was Ruth's hap to go forth and glean in Boaz's field. By God's providence, she went forth into the field God had prepared beforehand for her. All this was at work while Ruth was down in uh, with, with Naomi, down in her own land, and God was working behind the scenes. And just so, once you are a Christian, it is your hap when you go forth each day to glean in your Lord's field. The field you find yourself in is by God's providence the field God has prepared beforehand for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, very important scripture, a very comforting and encouraging scripture. You are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. A wonderful verse. And, and so Ruth had no idea that this was really going on. She was new to the Lord, new to following the Lord. Uh, but God had prepared these good works beforehand. And, and that's what God has done for you. By the way, just a, a kind of a Calvary Chapel trivia. If you're in Southern California, if you ever, this is one of Chuck Smith's favorite verses, Ephesians 2.10. And whenever Chuck quotes Ephesians 2.10, he always says, you are his workmanship. And he always mentions that the word workmanship is the Greek word poema, where we get our word poem from. I've heard Chuck say that a million times. And, and the idea is that we're, we're not just, you know, like tinker toys or erector sets. I mean, we're, we're something like a poem. We're something beautiful and, and articulate and, and all that. But if you're ever at Calvary Costa Mesa or any Southern California Calvary, and, and, and it's, it's customary, I'm just telling you this, Gino, recollect this, it's customary that when the pastor is saying, you are his workmanship, and in the Greek the word is, and then everybody quietly says, poema, to show how intelligent they are. You know, and stuff. So I just want you to be on board with that in case you're ever at another Calvary where you can just be a part of that move of the Spirit when it happens. So I'm always thinking of you guys. Jesus has prepared beforehand your good works. He has gone before you to make your way fruitful. In a sense, He is like the reaper and you are the gleaner. You're to follow Him through the various fields of your life picking up the gleanings that he has left for you. And those gleanings are what you pick up from the word of God in each and every field of your life. I mean, we can talk, we're going to mention some of the fields here. Uh, and, and the idea, the general idea is that your whole life is a pursuit of knowledge in these fields to learn more and more about what the Lord has, has 
prepared for you and has reaped for you. And as we go and grow, we glean a little bit here and a little bit there. We learn a little bit more about each of these, hopefully, and we mature. And so your marriage is the Lord's field. If you're married, there are fruitful gleanings scattered throughout the word of God about your relationship as husbands and wives. And as you're following Jesus with an eye to this, you you can pick them up. And so there are typical places where we do marriage studies from Ephesians 5 and all of that. But there's a lot of information about marriage tucked into all over the Bible, starting in Genesis, where God performs the first wedding ceremony and working all the way through uh, any any time you see a married couple in the Bible, you should be thinking, gee, I wonder what if anything there is here about marriage. What can I learn from Abraham and Sarah or these other individuals from uh, you know, the different couples that we see in the Word of God. And, and so there's a lot of gleanings. And, and a lot of times you're not really doing a marriage study, uh, but, but God will draw out these principles for that. Your family is the Lord's field. If you have children, there are fruitful gleanings scattered throughout the Word of God about how to train your children. There's uh, you know, certain key areas, obviously, that we always go to, but there's also a lot of other things. There's anytime you see children in the Scripture of any age, uh, there's a great uh, study of, uh, you know, we, we always obviously overlook the father-child aspect of Abraham uh, sacrificing his son uh, Isaac, but uh, there's a great relationship there, you know, and you realize that his son was about 30 years old or 33 years old when that took place and the submission of the son to the father and all of that. And so there are gleanings there. Your employment is the Lord's field. And I mean, this is one we can relate to because it's your field. What's your, people say, well, what's your field? And, and, and they mean, well, I'm a mechanic or I'm a maintenance man or I'm a pastor or I'm a whatever I am. That's my field of endeavor. I'm a doctor and I'm a, I specialize in this field of medicine. And it's a very common thing. And so if you have a job, there are gleanings scattered throughout the word of God about your diligence as a workman. And you need to follow Jesus and pick them up. Our church fellowship is the Lord's field. Since you're a Christian, there are fruitful gleanings scattered throughout the Word of God about your faithfulness towards the fellowship of believers and how we should relate one to another. Years ago, we used to do a lot of studies on the one another scriptures in the New Testament. I think there's like 58 times there that particular verb is used, one another. They fall into about 12 categories, serve one another, love one another, you know, and, and those are the only two I can remember right now, but that's how... Long it's been since we've talked. But if I stood here long enough and just keep talking, more of them will come to me. But I'm not going to do that. I want to bore you. But anyway, uh, there, there's all kinds of great information about that. And so Ruth went forth into the field seeking to glean heads of grain after him in whose sight she might find grace. So she went forth seeking grace. Is grace something that can be sought? Well, the writer to the Hebrews thought it was because he says in Hebrews 4.16... Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we we seek after grace. Once we're saved by grace, we have the privilege of seeking grace for our daily life, coming to God's throne, seeking grace and being assured that you will find grace to help in time of need. Now, I understand the urgency of that. But at the same time, you are always in a time of need. Uh, I mean, really, that's the way to, to appreciate that. Sometimes we think our time of need is only a specific or a, a, a certain intense trial. 
and the rest of the time we're, we're doing okay. But there's a sense in which, and I really mean this, you are always in need of God's grace because there's really nothing you can do apart from God's grace. Apart from his unmerited favor poured into your life, giving you strength and sufficiency, there's nothing you can do. You can't have a successful marriage or family or job or church relationship unless there's grace involved with it and you're depending upon the Lord. And, and I think where we get friction and problems in all of those areas, in every area of our life, is when we don't think that we're having a severe enough difficulty to really depend upon the Lord and we're going in our own strength and in our own ability. And that's why I don't recommend too many, for example, marriage books anymore. Because, I mean, there, so many of them are self-help books. Uh, they're not really, they're based on the Bible, but they're all about techniques that you can do in order to have a more successful marriage. And, and uh, you really, you just need to trust the Lord. Uh, you need to get on your knees and repent and, and not be so selfish. I like Steve Carr's book. Steve's the pastor of, pa of Calvary Chapel of Arroyo Grande. And he's got different chapter headings and different topics. And it's, a, it's, it's set up like a regular book. But really, every page and every chapter of the book is about how selfish you are. And, and, and it gets back to kind of looking at yourself. If this, you're having trouble in communication, here's what I recommend. Quit being so selfish. I mean, if you're having some trouble over here with your finances, how about you quit being so selfish and give it to the Lord? You're having trouble with your in-laws? Why be so selfish? You know, it's, and, and it really it focuses your attention on the fact that your problem is self. It's the flesh. It doesn't give all of these fluff suggestions and, you know, uh, suggested budgets. And, you know, if your wife is harping about not having, give her an allowance and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm not saying any of that is bad, but so much of it passes into the realm of I can do this. I can, you know, and, and I think we need to see how bankrupt we are and just say, Lord, I need your grace. I need your sufficiency. I can't do any of this on my own. And so... We're always in need. Go forth each day seeking grace for every field of your life and then go forth every day surprised by grace. When she found grace, she was surprised by it. She exclaimed in verse 10, Why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? I love this attitude of, of Ruth. Ruth is hardcore. She, she says, look, all I remember last week we ended with all I know about your God, Naomi, is that he killed your husband and he killed my husband and my, my brother-in-law. But I want some of that. There, there's a jealousy there. There's a depth there. There's a love there that, that I want because I know why he did it. He did it because he's jealous over them and over you and he wants what's best and, and he will only let us go so far. And so I want that. Even though he says I'm a Moabitess and I can't be part of the family of God, I don't believe that. I believe that he has grace for me. I mean, Ruth is really intense. And then she seeks this grace. And then when she finds it, oh, wow, you really have grace for me, Lord. And so it's a beautiful thing. And even as believers, God's grace should continually surprise us that he takes notice of us, even though we were once foreigners and aliens from his promises. And so we want to see how Boaz treated Ruth with undeserved favor or grace, surprising her. And when we do, we'll see Boaz as a type of Jesus and how he treats us. And first of all, we find that Boaz sought Ruth. Verse 4, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord be, uh, bless you. And then Boaz said to his servant, 
who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. And so what we get here symbolically is that Boaz first sought after Ruth. She wasn't going there thinking that Boaz was her near kinsman and that she was posturing to put herself into a position. She was just going to glean. It was a providential thing. And Boaz noticed her. It's Jesus who by grace first seeks after us to save us. After we're saved, Jesus still takes the initiative. Before you're even aware of his doing so, he gives you gifts by which you serve him in grace. And, and it's always everything that the Lord does really should be a surprise to you. If there's ever anything God gives you or does for you that you think you deserve, you know, think about think about it's Christmas time and we're buying gifts for our children. Uh, and I mean, think of when you give your child a gift and they don't appreciate it or think that they deserve it or, or deserve something better. And, and you know, the, it's neat when kids have a wonder and a surprise that, wow, look, at oh, there's a box. Oh, there's something in the box. I thought the box, look at that's a beautiful bow. Oh, and the wrapping paper's mine too. Thank you. Oh, the box I can play with. Oh, look at that. There's a doll. And, and, and uh, I, no kid has ever done that, by the way. But anyway, you'd like them to, but at least appreciate their toys. And, and, and so we, we should be excited whenever God notices us and seeks us. Boaz spoke to Ruth in verse 8. Then he said to Ruth, you listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in any other field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Somewhat surprising that the Lord of the field would speak to an impoverished gleaner. How much more surprising to think that the Lord Jesus, the creator of all the fields and all the universe surrounding them uh, and containing them, should speak to you. And, so the, and yet he does. Boaz summoned Ruth to a reward in verse 10. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work with a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. And so Ruth had faithfully served her mother-in-law. She was surprised that her faithful service had been noticed. Here she was at the feet of Boaz being rewarded for what seemed so insignificant to her. And of course, you and I will be summoned one day to the reward of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 speak of our being summoned to his reward seat. The rewards the Lord grants will surprise you since, like Ruth, uh, I think in most cases your service seems so insignificant. A lot of times you feel like you're just doing what everybody should do and that you haven't done anything great for the Lord. You desire to, you would like to, but you just haven't been called to you know, you keep watching the, the phone and it just, Billy Graham's not calling. You know, he doesn't have your number, I guess. And so you send it to him at Christmas time and 
you email it to them or whatever. But, but you know, you just and, and there's a sense I think sometimes that well, we're disconnected. We're not doing anything great for the Lord, and and that's the sense Ruth had. She's like, hey, I'm just I'm just being nice to my mother-in-law. I mean, what's up with that? And and Boaz had taken notice of it, and so you're going to be rewarded for for uh, everything that you've done as unto the Lord. You're going to be rewarded for the faithfulness of it, for the spirit of it, for the uh, the way you did it as unto the Lord, not for the greatness of it or the quantity of it necessarily. Now, God may call you to quantity and give you ministry. That's fine too. But, but he calls you to a faithfulness and he will reward you. And so we should go forth every day exper- expecting grace. When you experience grace, it should still surprise us. We were lowly foreigners, but Jesus sought to make us his bride. And then he speaks to us and he will one day summon us to his reward And then finally, in verses 14 through 23, Ruth went day satisfied by grace. Notice how Boaz sees to it that Ruth is completely satisfied as a gleaner. Verse 14, now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also let grain from bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. And then she took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Uh, lots of wonderful lessons in these verses. Ruth still goes forth every day into the field to glean. And, and what you get from that, in one sense, her overall circumstances have not changed. She's still really an impoverished widow who must work doubly hard to provide for her impoverished mother-in-law. And she's still an alien and a stranger in Israel. And, and so... A lot of times we miss some of these points because we see the end of the story. But you have to understand that every day she's going out in the field and, and, and she's coming back and her situation hasn't really changed. It's going to change. Uh, and, and that's great. But that's where I, when we try and minister to people, you know, your situation is going to change. It may not change this side of eternity. Uh, you, you may have a situation that is actually terminal. Uh, and, and there's no use us trying to cheer you up and say things are going to be better tomorrow. But your situation is going to change, just like Ruth's. But, so, so nothing's changed, but everything had changed. She's satisfied each day, 
because her needs are being met by the Lord of the field. And she's on her way to being wed to this wonderful man. Every day, your needs are promised to be filled by the Lord of the field. We don't believe that because sometimes it seems like we go without certain things. And uh, even Hebrews uh, 11, the hall of faith. Some of those guys, man, wow, they stopped the mouths of lions and they did all of these things. And then others of them lived in caves and were uh, outcasts. And so how does that? Well, sometimes the Lord knows you need to starve a little bit or that you need to have a certain affliction. And this is a difficulty for us because we think in terms of needs being met and us being satisfied. But we only think of needs in a positive way. And God says, well, Gene, I see that you need to be humbled. You need something to humble you. I'm going to have to send you an affliction. uh, The Lord did this to Paul the Apostle for the abundance of the revelations that he had. I mean, here's a guy who was stoned to death, taken up into heaven, got to check out heaven for a while, comes back, gets up, wants to preach the gospel some more. He's so humble about it, he says, I don't even know if the, I don't know who this guy was and I don't know if he was dead or alive, but, and when he got to heaven, he can't tell you anything about it because it's so wonderful. But the Lord says to him, I'm going to give you a thorn in your flesh. Paul prayed about it three times. The Lord said, don't even pray about it anymore. I've given it to you. It's a need that you have to have this physical ailment so that you can grow in grace and in my sustaining you. And so so God is always going to meet your needs and you're always on your way to your wedding. We're the bride of Christ. Jesus wants to tell us about how much he loves each of us. And he says, well, look, look at it this way. I'm like a bridegroom and you're like my bride. That's how much I love you. And our time, your time on earth is like an engagement and, and most people can dial into that, that that was an exciting time, or at least it ought to be. And, and, and so that's the situation that we see with Ruth. You go forth each day into your fields. In one sense, being a Christian doesn't change your circumstances. In some cases, being a Christian makes your circumstances worse than they were before. A lot of you have this testimony. You were doing great until you became a Christian. And then all of a sudden, you lost your job or you wish you did. Uh, Because of the way people are treating you. Your family changed and turns on you. You don't have any friends anymore. I remember one of the first things that happened after we became Christians. uh, You know, we were so excited, Pam and I, obviously, and stuff. And then I I forget the time frame. But uh, not too long after that, just within days, all of a sudden we're sitting at home. And I can remember I was sitting on the stairs and Pam was sitting on the couch. I actually see it in my mind. And the telephone rang. We knew that it was our friend's because we were expecting a call from them that week about our, I think it was a pending trip to Mexico where we would go and get stoned and blitzed and, you know, go down to Who Songs and just do all the stuff that young people did down in Southern California. And we both thought, we can't do that. What are we going to tell them? You know, should we go and witness to them or, you know, stuff? And, and so we just came clean and shared with them and stuff. And of course, they didn't want us to go even if we wanted to go. We said, we'll still go, but we can't drink. And so I remember Mark saying, why go then? You know, so it's just so, you know, there, it, it's like everything changes, you know, that it's, it's, it's not always a positive thing. But in another sense, everything has changed because Jesus is the Lord of the field and he sees to it that you can be satisfied in each field. And we're on our way to the wedding. So why are so many believers 
dissatisfied. Well, there's a lot of reasons, obviously, and, and, but one key, since we're in the book of Ruth, is to look for satisfaction in your field rather than looking to other fields. There's a, 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 a teaching here that Ruth would only be satisfied if she gleaned in that field. That was the field of God's providence for her. She had to stay in that field. All others held danger and discouragement for her. You notice earlier Boaz said, and it's a practical thing, but it's a spiritual thing too. Boaz said, my young men will not harm you. The indication was you might not be so safe in some of these other fields. You know, there's, some of these guys are kind of rough and, and women didn't have much of a reputation in those days and especially a Moabite woman who, you know, and so you could, she was only going to be safe and satisfied if she stayed in Boaz's field. And so we look at the field of marriage, for example. It provides a great example. Many believers want to glean in another field when it comes to marriage. I mean, it sounds funny, but that's really what it comes down to. And many of them do. They leave their field of marriage. They don't like it. It's not fruitful. It's too difficult. They're not satisfied for one reason or another. Steve Carr would say it's because they're selfish. And that is the reason. And they begin to look to other fields. Uh, and and uh, all the other fields other than your own marriage hold danger and discouragement. And the same can be true of all the other areas we talked about. Marriage is a, is a stronger one as an illustration. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes I mention things about a person's job or their uh, schooling and stuff. And you don't want to come across as if a Christian can never change jobs. I mean, of course you can change jobs. Of course you can go to different schools. I mean, but what is your motive for it? I mean, if, you, if, if God has put you in a particular job and it's a, you know, it's a thing where you just don't like it because it's difficult. You want a better boss and, and uh, you know, people who treat you nice and stuff. Okay, maybe even that is a reason, but just pray about it. I mean, if you leave, then where's, who's going to fill that vacuum? I mean, God went to a lot of trouble to get you that job. He really did. And when you think about it that way, and he put you there and then he knew he was going to save you. And there's a period of time that he probably wants you to, to be a testimony and a witness. There's, there's only, you know, it, it's kind of, uh, it's interesting. There's a brief period of time in your life, in my life, when people can really see the radical change that Jesus makes in your life. You're, you're at a school, you're in a job, you're in a family, and, and you're headed to hell this way, and then all of a sudden one day you're saved, and, and it's like night and day. And that's a unique time period in your life. When you leave that job, for example, and go to your next job, you start off there as the Christian that you are. And they might see you grow and love the Lord, but they don't see something they don't see that transformation from caterpillar to butterfly as it were and 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 yet so often people they they can't wait I, I, i'm saved i got to get out of this job the people here hate me and they they're mistreating me and you know i hate my school and and all of that you know pray it through but think about it you know, and, and, and sometimes I think people need to be encouraged to just be satisfied in the field that God has put them, at least for a time, so that they can have the effect that God wants them to have. 
And so, as I you know, you can apply this to all the fields of your life. Glean only in the fields that is your providence to be in. Often it's a lack of real commitment to fields that blocks the grace of God which can satisfy you. Don't get me wrong. I love living in the United States. I mean, I, I have no plans to retire to Mexico or anywhere else. You know, I'm not going to move to France to live next door to Johnny Depp or, you know, anything like that. I mean, I just, I mean, I'm sure there are other great countries, but I'm so happy that we're, I'm glad for the rights that we have. I think we should use our rights and sign petitions and do all the things that Americans do. Um, that's, that's not a, a problem. However, we have a lot of choices. Or, well, let me take that back. We think we have a lot of choices. And I always say to people, it, take church life, for example. I, I like to say, people say, well, I'm going to go to this church or that church. Have you prayed about that? I mean, what, what, have you asked the Lord where he wants you to go to church? Well, kind of. I mean, I just do, I try this church and it has these programs and those programs. And I was explaining to somebody the other day, when we moved from the mountains in Running Springs down back into San Bernardino, I wanted with all of my heart to go to Calvary Chapel of Redlands. That's where Don McClure was pastoring. He had been our first pastor when we got saved. We, I still love Don McClure. He still, I mean, I'd rather listen to him teach and talk about the Lord than anybody else. I mean, I just love the guy. He's like a mentor. He's phenomenal. I, I just, and so we, Redlands and San Bernardino were, the churches were real close to each other because of the borders. I mean, it was no farther than going to Lemoore or in Hanford. And we were all set to go to Calvary Redlands and we prayed about it and we felt like the Lord told us to go to Calvary Chapel of San Bernardino. We were so depressed. Not so much about San Bernardino, but about not being able to go to Redlands. But now you look back and I think, I don't know what my life would have been like, but I can see how the path of our life went through San Bernardino. It was like when Jesus said, I have to go to Samaria. Today, my father told me we're going through Samaria. It's not the direct route. It's not the way you guys would have chosen. I'm going to Samaria because and I don't know what's going to happen there. We're just going there. And then he rested by the well and he met the woman at the well in Samaria. And I think a lot of times we don't know the field that God wants us in because we have so much freedom that we don't really pray about things. Remember a few weeks ago we were talking about some episodes in the end of Judges where they said, hey, we're going to go fight our brothers. Lord, what do you think? Should I go first or should they go first? And the Lord said, well, uh, you know, Judah should go first. And they got wiped out. Well, why did the Lord allow that? Because they didn't ask him if they should go to war. They decided to go to war. And they said, well, if, I, if we're going to war, so who should go first? He goes, well, if, as long as you're going to war, you might as well say Judah. And a lot of times we do that. It's like, hey, we're, we're going to go here, Lord, so bless that. And, and I just think people should have a real solid grip on this is where the Lord has me. And, and we move too quickly, I think. I'm not saying you can't ever change churches or jobs I am saying you shouldn't change your marriage. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's some things that are closed and other things there's a big opening. But at least sincerely pray about it. And and you don't always get sent to the field that you want to go to. But it's the field that the Lord has for you. And it's a more fruitful field in the long run for the things that you need to learn and grow. Uh, And that's a... That's, a, again, another problem because we are always looking for the field that provides us the most benefit. Hey, this field has bigger, better, more, you know, whatever we're looking for. 
and, and you know, it's, it's, maybe God does want you to go there or be there, but maybe he doesn't because there are unique things he knows. And so let's just pray about it. And so Ruth set her heart on God's grace, saved by grace. She would serve by grace, expecting grace. She experienced it in a wonderful way. She found herself in Boaz's field, then at his feet, and then at his feast. And that's the same with us. Boaz is a type of Christ to us. We are his Ruth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things and the many other things that are here that I'm sure you suggested to your people as we went through this. And they were thinking, man, you're missing this, Gene. This is beautiful. And, and I thank you for the insight that you give each of us as, as the word of God is read and taught. We love Ruth and thank you for the, the identification that we can make with her. We thank you, Jesus, that you're our Boaz in such a greater way. Help us, Lord, to be satisfied in the fields of our endeavor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.